2: October 12th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, our man in North Carolina, Asa Sharma. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me as always, Chris. We've got some upgrades to discuss in the travel industry and global apparel retail, but we are going to start with the latest from Fastenal. Third quarter profits from the industrial products maker came in higher than expected. Shares of Fastenal up a bit and close to a new all-time high. In fact, this is not a household name, but holy cow, are they in the business of household products? I mean, you just go to the Facet All website, and it's hardware, lighting, sealers, uh, electrical equipment, batteries, fasteners. Um, this is uh, this is a good report for them. It's a great report, Chris. And you know,
3: it's a company that I bet lurks in the subconsciousness of many people. If you've ever driven down the highway and just. Been half paying attention and seeing like a Fastenal truck plow past you. It's a name that we're sort of familiar with, but like you say, it's not household. But a good company nonetheless for people who like industrial stocks and don't want something too flashy. But companies that have these very solid models that just need optimization over time. They sit in a great place in our economy. You know, Fastenal as the name implies. Actually, also sells fastening products, fasteners. You can think of it as a glue company in our economy. And for that reason, I also like it as a bellwether of what's happening out in the larger world. So, this quarter, yeah, net sales were up 10%. um, Gross profit, uh, slight increase uh, versus the prior year. They they gained about 1%. Percentage point of gross margin to forty six point three percent, which is a lot in this business. That's uh, you know fairly impressive, and a nice bump in net earnings up to about two hundred forty three million. That's another ten percent year over year increase. What I like about Fastenal a lot is that they have more technology being infused into their selling process than most of us realize. Um, if you've ever looked at this company, you probably know that they have an on-site solution for manufacturers where they basically have their own sales personnel and inventory there. They help manage the inventory. But the business, which I think is the bigger growth driver for them long-term, is this vending bins. They have vending machines they put in manufacturing facilities, and they have bins that are increasingly automated that track inventory themselves and have a digital component to them. This is uh, a long-term investment Fastenal has been making, and it's paying off over time in in faster sales growth, slightly better margins. Chris, I just breezed through the report uh, this morning. Now, a full 45% of their business can be considered digital. When you take sort of the direct to uh, their industrial customer sales, plus these high-tech Bins that know when to request inventory that that track uh, barcodes and, and SKUs etc. So this is a more techie business than than it would seem on the surface.
2: It's interesting because you know Fastenal is not a huge company. It's about a thirty billion dollar company, and yet I remember talking to Brian Hinman a few years ago. Um, Brian's the chief investment officer at Motley Fool Asset Management Funds, um, and he said that. Fastenal, he, he called it a top five conference call for him. When he's trying to get a sense every quarter of what's going on in the U.S. economy, one of the conference calls that he always listens to is Fastenal, um, because it gives him insight into the industrial side of the economy. Let's put that into
3: perspective for today. Um, the CEO today was talking about shipping cost in, in general. And I totally agree with Brian. This is a really instructive call. Daniel Thornis rarely holds back. Um, he mentioned today that in, in shipping, it wasn't just difficulty, it was pain. <laughs> All of these manufacturers, industrial concerns, and retailers, as we know, big retailers, are enduring a lot of inflationary pain on shipping costs. they They tell it like it is. They're very specific about how the underpinnings of the larger economy are affecting Fastenal's business. And because of that sort of truth telling I would call it, it is a great call. Sure. Is it a five top five call for those who want to know what's really happening out there
2: in the US economy? Yes, I would totally agree with that. Shares of Airbnb up four percent today after getting an analyst upgrade from Cowan. And the thing that interests me Is the part of the report that says Wall Street is underestimating the potential for Airbnb's bookings growth in 2022. I'm always interested whenever an analyst ends up and basically says, the rest of you are wrong on this one.
3: It is. It takes some courage when you're in a business that is so focused on what's happening next quarter to be able to do something that we would call foolish with a capital F, and say, "Well, what about four quarters from now or eight quarters from now?" And I think the the analysis is sort of spot on. I mean, there are two big drivers in Airbnb's business that should be a paid should should be paid attention to by investors. One is that their bookings are starting to reflect a mi- migration away from big cities. So they're still seeing great bookings in major metropolitan areas. But increasingly, they see bookings rising in second tier cities, I call them. These are smaller metropolitan st- statistical areas in the United States or just smaller cities uh, in uh, close to European capitals is another great example, or travel destinations in Latin America. There are all kinds of examples of this type of city. They are seeing sustained interest in that. And that signal says the world may be changing a little bit Uh, after COVID. The other big uh, measure to take a look at is the length of stay. This was something that the company called out in its uh, most recent quarterly report. They're seeing the the days associated with each booking continuing to expand. And in some cities, this is expanding at rates that exceed pre-COVID levels. So there may be a change underway in the way that we are all going to work and travel. I say may here, and I hesitate a bit because so much of this is also governed by tax regulations in each country. If you work in the United States, depending on where your employer is based, it may not be that easy to work in your dream destination for a couple of months. You may have a tax implication and owe two states income taxes, or your employer may not allow you to work in Rome for six months. So while different localities start to work out their tax regulations to attract in uh, high spending remote workers. We'll see some of that change, but it is something that I think this analyst has uh, put his or her finger on that these bookings are pointing to maybe a more sustained piece of market share that Airbnb will enjoy for quite some time to come. And I'm not surprised the stock is up today.
2: Well, and the longer stay that you mentioned that jives with um, something Matt singer said when I was talking with him recently, and because um, he's um, got a place that he rents out, and you know, I just have to believe that if you're if you've got a property and you are listing on Airbnb, it's just got to be better for a number of reasons with the, to have people with longer stays. Um, it, it just requires fewer bookings overall presumably your costs are a little bit lower because if you've got a cleaning crew that's coming in or something like that like that that's happening on fewer occasions so it's look you never want to put too much emphasis as an investor into a single analyst report no matter who it's coming from and and what their track record is but uh, sort of uh, this report about Airbnb I think does a, a good job of, of basically, essentially strengthening the the, um, the baseline case for the business. It's not you know it's not, and we've seen this in other industries where a report will come out and it's you know the headline is all about uh, growth strategy, sales growth, whatever. This to me is more along the lines of the underpinnings of Airbnb's business are stronger than some people think and more sustainable than some people think.
3: I agree. It, it's a thesis that's trying to stress test the case for market share that many um, Airbnb bulls have been making for a long time. Which is to say that this market is so vast; it's in the trillions of, of dollars, the total addressable market for extended stays. I mean, they compete with the hotel industry, they compete with the apartment rental industry. Uh, this a great market here. If Airbnb can keep extending its brand uh, within that, then eventually they'll scale into pretty decent profitability. So this strengthens that case. And we should say at the same time, though, I mean, this business case isn't without risk. One of the more recent dings against Airbnb is how opaque the total cost of the service is if you're on the platform, because often, and this has happened to me, Chris, you'll you'll be ready to rent that place. And then you see the cleaning fee come in, which totally changes the picture because that's a variable expense. And we've discussed that before, so there are some risks in this but uh this is something we can now um for those who, for those of us who are interested and have already been thinking along the same lines this is a focus point for the next quarterly reports to to watch these metrics.
2: Yeah, I think they've gotten more transparent with the, with the cost, but uh, the, yeah, it's something they could improve even further. Um sure. before we get to our final story I just want to mention uh remind folks our email address is com, and uh, if you've been listening to this podcast for less than a year, uh, then you're probably unfamiliar with something we refer to as apropos of nothing, which is that uh, once a year or so, uh, we have an episode of this podcast that isn't about investing at all. Uh, it's just sort of uh, shooting the breeze. And and that's where listeners like you come in, because uh, we've gotten some great suggestions on potential topics for these apropos of nothing episodes uh, one that we did last year was, um, what would you put on your Mount Rushmore of soups? That actually ended up being a pretty heated debate, if you can only pick four soups to put on Mount Rushmore. So, um, we do have an Apropos of Nothing episode planned. Uh, it's scheduled to come before the end of the month. And if you have potential topics you want to uh, suggest to us, drop us an email, at fool.com. Shares of Nike are up a bit today after a Goldman Sachs report that said nice things about the overall health of the athletic apparel industry and the growth plans that Nike has in place. And this one seems a little bit fuzzier than the report on Airbnb. I mean, it's obviously it's positive on Nike, but it was it. it, uh, I don't know. I'm curious what you thought of it because it didn't grab me in the same way that the Airbnb one did. I think fuzzy is a great way to describe this. I mean, the thesis here is
3: that Nike still has a strong brand. They've made strides with their direct-to-consumer business. They've been able to bounce back numerous times in the past from the types of challenges that they're facing this year. So they've got supply chain issues, cost inflation, which everybody and his or her brother is facing. But yes, it is a fuzzier thesis. I mean, one way that we can... Get to terms with uh, this way of looking at a company, which again, this is a very foolish capital F way to look at a very strong multinational conglomerate, is to think about that brand. I'll refer us all back to a survey that came out last week. This is the 42nd edition of Piper Sandler's semi annual survey, where they survey teens. This year's or, or latest survey had 10,000 teens participate across 44 states. Nike earned the top spots in the footwear and apparel categories. They had 27% share of the vote when it came to apparel and a bigger footprint at 57% when it came to footwear. Now, in that same survey, Converse came in at, at uh, 7%, which has been a, a Nike brand uh, for for quite a while. So this is a way for us to sort of quantify the idea that one should invest in Nike because of its brand strength and because it has a really efficient operating model which takes a lot of free cash flow and invests it in demand expense. That is, how do we drive up demand? We do it through sponsorships. We do it through technical innovation. I'll also say that Nike has done a pretty decent job of um, not trying to fight the trends in the industry they've been a very willing participant in the move, the movement towards technology embedded uh, clothing, and this whole athleisure market. So, I think in terms of understanding where they should keep investing to grow, Nike does a very good job. But this is not a straightforward thesis. There is no big change here, um, no, no sea change that says Nike can continue to push all-time highs. It's more about hey, these guys execute at a level which is pretty impressive, and we see this continuing despite the near-term challenges that have knocked the stock down a bit over the past few months.
2: On Motley Full Money last week, um, I, I sort of posed a question: you know, who, which group of shareholders is really hoping for good news this earnings season? And Ron Gross uh, said it was Nike. Um, and y- y- you look at look, this is a a long-term. Market beating stock, Um, but over the past year, it is absolutely trailing the market. So when you talk about sort of the near term pressures, like yeah, this is uh, it's it's not to say it's not a great business and a great brand, but um, if you know if you're a shareholder, you're you're right to be hoping that Rod Gross um, uh, is right um, that um, they need some good news. Yeah, and I really think you know if you take a
3: look at that Nike chart and just widen it out a bit, so much of this may seem temporary in retrospect. To it, to me, they're still chasing those all time highs, even though uh, over the last few months they've been battered by the same issues that I that I mentioned with supply chains, inflation, just getting product into stores. Um, however, I think that those again are temporary. And Ron is so right to point out that if you're a Nike shareholder, you just want to hear that things are back on track and that you can feel very comfortable with Nike. Such a sleepy stock, but a high achiever. Uh, the volatility hasn't been very welcome
2: this year. So, so I could totally uh, get behind his argument there. Thank you for reminding me that uh, Nike owns Converse, because I always forget that. And I'm old enough to remember a time when Converse was a very dominant uh, athletic shoe brand. And, um, you know, nice reminder that uh, uh, just because you're on top of the world uh, as a business for a while doesn't mean you're going to stay there. For sure. And uh, I'm literally wearing a pair of check tailors as we speak.
3: So with you there, you know, I'll love to, to Converse and to Nike for that for that matter. I, I, I often have been guilty of second-guessing this company over the years. So, Sometimes you have to express your appreciation, so I might as well do it while we're still here uh, in the next minute or so. Nike has, has done an admirable job over the decades just pushing out great earnings, value creation, and withstanding a lot of change in, in the industry. Uh, this is something I think going forward, Again, if you're a shareholder, you can sort of sleep well at night knowing that the management team is always a little bit ahead of the trend, and they've invested appropriately by the time that trend really uh, starts to take off. They were a pioneer in the sports endorsement game; still do very well at that, and have also mastered the art of taking a single sub-brand like the Jordan brand and just making it sort of an everlasting property. So, um, hats off to Nike in that regard too. Again, like Airbnb, not a risk-free thesis, but uh, this is definitely among blue chip companies one that that you can sense will keep executing for
2: a while to come. That's awesome, a charmer. Great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Chris. A lot of fun. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market week. The show's mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.
1: Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play
0: Store.
4: TED Talks Daily, I'm Elise Hugh. Today's speaker made a measurable impact by pressing for policy change in her home country of Indonesia before she was even 16 years old. In her talk recorded for the Countdown Summit in 2021, youth activist and social entrepreneur Melati Weissen shares the lessons she learned about pushing for lasting, sustainable social change. Given how much she's already done, I can't wait to see what she does in the next decade. TED Talks Daily is brought to you by Progressive. Have you tried the Name Your Price tool yet? It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to find a rate that works for you. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive. Get your quote today at Progressive.com and see why four out of five new auto customers recommend Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Now What's Next, a podcast from Morgan Stanley helps make sense of life during and after the pandemic. With nearly two decades of experience reporting on culture and the economy, host Sonari Glinton meets people who are looking for solutions to the cracks exposed by the pandemic. From how we care for our children and the elderly to what we do with shopping malls, these are stories of everyday people trying to figure things out and where they're finding hope. Search for Now What's Next wherever you listen to podcasts.
5: Do you remember when you were 12 years old? I do. I was on a mission, convinced that I could change the world around me. In 2013, together with my sister Isabel, I started a movement in Bali because I saw a problem that I thought had an easy solution. We wanted to do something about the growing problem of plastic pollution on our home island of Bali, Indonesia. Now, when I first started, I had never heard of the word changemaker or activist, Today, I introduce myself as a full-time change-maker and movement builder. But I was not always delivered with such confidence. There is this saying, if I only knew back then what I know today. Sounds familiar, right? I started full of passion and excitement, believing that I would achieve this change of making Bali plastic bag free before summer was over and the school year started. And everywhere I went, I was met with, oh, so cute, so inspirational. And yeah, I guess two little girls and a bunch of friends trying to make a difference is pretty special. But you know what? Cute wasn't really what I was going for. I slowly learned to build a team, to gather evidence, create campaigns, develop a movement, to stage beach cleanups, collect signatures, speak in public, and meet politicians. The more I learned, the more I wanted things to change. Passion quickly turned into obsession. And when change didn't happen as quickly as I expected, at 14 years old, frustration settled deep in my soul. And soon after that, in my first years of high school, I experienced my first burnout. But having said that, I wouldn't have changed a thing especially because, in 2019, Bali finally did ban single-use plastic bags. My peers and I created our own learning journey outside of the traditional curriculum and classroom, building our own guidance and frameworks that could share with us what the next step should be, how to continue building the momentum we needed to achieve the change we wanted to see. I went through a lot of life lessons very quickly, and yet, there are things that I wish someone could have told me earlier, back when I was starting. First, change does not happen as quickly as summer vacation. It takes a long time, and that is not always easy to accept. But that is why it is essential to create a clear goal with a timeline. Also, it takes a lot of people. Listen and be open to learn, but stay true to the mission. And it would have also been so helpful to know how to navigate collaborations with businesses and politicians. Someone has to address the elephant in the room. And finally, it's okay to take a break and step back for a second. There are many of us on the front lines who will continue the work while you rest and recharge. Today, many of us are getting involved at a younger and younger age, 16-year-olds, 15, 14, 10-year-olds are out on the front lines, missing school, drafting manifestos, organizing demonstrations, bringing governments and corporations to court, refusing to wait until we are older to start making a difference. But being a changemaker is not something anybody has on their bucket list. It isn't something kids aspire to become when they grow up. It's something that just happens. Something activates you, an experience, an injustice that takes place, big or small, local or global. And then there is almost no choice but to get involved. In the last few years, I have spent more time in other students' classrooms than in my own, sharing principles of leadership, sustainability, and change-maker skills. And I can say with confidence that young people are aching for skills and knowledge that will allow them to act effectively today. Real change can start in the classroom, but the classroom has an increasingly distant relationship with reality. I think it is high time to ensure that what we learn in the classrooms reflect what is happening outside of them. And to ensure that every single student in every corner of the world has at least one hour a day of mandatory lessons about the climate crisis, the 17 SDGs, and about any sustainable innovations, about the realities of today's world, from kindergarten through to graduation, and I mean mandatory. I strongly believe that every young person can be a change maker, but often they need help knowing where and how to start. And while we wait for the classrooms to adapt, once again, My peers and I create our own learning journey. That is when I started a network called the Circle of Youth within Youthtopia, a platform for young changemakers to learn from each other. We need role models and positive stories with an impact, real-life examples of how we can take action. And we need to see this from people our age. I wish I would have known refugee educator Mohammed Al-Junde from Syria tree planter and entrepreneur Felix Finkbeiner from Germany, or gender equality activist Faisiman Juntag from Indonesia when I was 12 years old. And I wish that I could have been able to jump on a call with them and share ideas and experiences. Now, I have to add that with the rise in youth engagement, a new scary trend has also set in. The best way to describe it is maybe to refer to the word greenwashing. You all know it. It's the process of conveying a false impression about the climate friendliness of a company product or actions. What I see happening a lot at the moment is something I would call youth washing. You don't want to know the emails and approaches we get on a daily basis from companies that want to use us for anything that sounds good or just to tick off a box. Associating one's brand with youth climate activists seems to be good for business, although the intention rarely extends to being good for climate too. So, to the company's youth washing, I want to say, instead of inviting youth for the photo ops and the applause, offer us a seat during the brainstorming meetings, during the internal workshops with no audience. Maybe invite us to one of your board meetings and ask us for some reverse mentoring sessions you might be surprised. I look back at the last 10 years and see an intense journey from a young, cute girl to a change maker. For the next decade, I see a whole generation that is rising, leading by example and taking action. Youth activism is more than an inspiration. We are serious about change. Thank you.
6: If you enjoyed this episode,
2: please leave us a review on iTunes.
1: Great leaders handle change. I'm David Novak, and on my podcast, How Leaders Lead, I bring you conversations with the top entrepreneurs, athletes, and CEOs who are making a difference in the world one decision at a time. Consider this show a set of best practice visits of leaders like Tony Hsu of DoorDash, Indra Nui of PepsiCo, Ajay Banga of MasterCard. So listen to How Leaders Lead with me, David Novak, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 20th Century Studios. Ron's Gone Wrong is coming only to theaters. I'm going
7: to be late. My pants
4: are on backwards. Your B-Bot is super weird.
1: On October 22nd, we'll meet Ron. Hi.
4: Making friends is what he's for. If he can't do that, he's pointless.
1: He's not perfect.
4: I can see it's wrong.
1: But he's the perfect friend.
4: You're supposed to know everything about me. Hi, 4'11". 5'11 would be better. Girls would not laugh at you. Hey!
1: Ron's Gone Wrong. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Get your pots in theaters October 22nd.
8: And you are tuned into episode 81 of my Celebrate Hearing No, Make Your Own Yes podcast. And on this episode, I'll be chatting with the super amazing Minda Hart. She is the CEO of the memo LLC and an award-winning and best-selling author of the memo, What Women of Color Need to Know to Secure a seat at the table. Let's go ahead and get started. Hi, good afternoon. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing amazing. I'm happy to talk to you. I'm just super, super excited about everything you're doing.
9: <laughs> oh, thank you,
8: thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Of course, you're very, very welcome. I definitely want to get started, and I have a bunch of questions to ask you about all the cool things you're doing. I think you know, first and foremost, um, I'm very curious to know, you know, why has it been always important? To, you to help others get a seat at the table and also help people achieve their goals? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. I, You know, I always really
9: yes. lean into the mantra of success is not a solo sport. And if we only focus on ourselves, then um, we're only, it, it's a little bit selfish sometimes to only care about our success, but it's so much better when you can look around your table and see that you've helped other people get there too. And so I think that, it's important to have that spirit of lifting while you climb, And I know that I wasn't able to ascend to the levels that I did in my previous life without help. And so it's always been really important to me.
8: That is so, so awesome. Um, I know you also have your book as well. The latest book that is out um, called right within, I would love to know about right within and also the thought process behind it. I love the cover art, by the way. It's so, so cool. I love the cover art. <laughs> <laughs>
9: thank, thank you so much. Um, you know, I had to. Well, You're you don't welcome. know this, but I'll give you an insider trick, uh, tip. When I was going back and forth with my um, publisher, we had different book covers. And I'm like, no, that's not the one. That's not the one. And then we finally got to this one. I'm like, that is the one. <laughs> so so I, I love it, too. So I'm glad that, that you do, too. Um, so when I, when I wrote the memo, uh, my first book, I met and hear from so many uh, women of color saying, you know, how they have experienced all these inequalities in the workplace. And it made me start to think about my own as well and how I've still experienced some PTSD related to some of the traumas that I've experienced racially, being a black woman and oftentimes the only one, and how you don't realize how much of that starts to distort who you are, your authentic self, because you're always in the state of paranoia in the workplace. You know, is that racism? Is it not? Is it sexism? Is it not? You don't know um, because if you're the only one, you don't really have anyone to affirm your feelings or take into consideration how you might be experiencing the workplace. And I started to think about discrimination and how we often don't talk about racial discrimination, how that's kind of a taboo topic at times. And so I really wanted to dive in into what would it be like for a black and brown woman to feel free at work, like some of our counterparts and holding our managers accountable for creating safety for everyone.
8: Mm-hmm. And speaking of, you know, your first book, I wanted to kind of rewind a little bit. Um, no, I want to ask you, you know, how did the publishing, you know, with your first book, change your process of writing um, with this book and actually what advice could you give to aspiring writers?
9: Yeah, you know, I took the advice that Toni Morrison put out there many, many years ago. She said, write the book you want to read. And that's exactly what I did with Mm -hmm. the first book and and exactly what I did with the second book. I just wrote it from Mm -hmm. something that I know would be helpful to me, that I hope it would be helpful to other people. And um, I didn't have a large following at the time. I, you know. I didn't have a lot of things that I thought I needed to be able to get a traditional publishing deal, but I had a story to tell, and so I want to encourage everybody who has a story to tell. Don't discount yourself because you don't have a blue check or you don't know, you know, Oprah or somebody like that. You know, um, you still have a story and your voice needs to be heard, and so you can control the writing process. So. Every day, I write just a little bit, even if it's only 200 words a day, and that helps me process some of my feelings. And um, when I started writing my weekly newsletter back in 2015, when it was time to write my book in 2019, I could go back and look at all those different entries and start to pull from. So you just never know. Like the saying says, if you stay ready, you don't
8: have to get ready. Right? (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. And I also want to ask you as well, okay, so with The Right Within, um, what do you hope that the readers will take away? Like, you know, when they're reading this book and they're just, you know, following along with the story and hearing what you have to say, what do you hope will go through their mind? And also, how long did it take you to complete this entire book? I know it wasn't easy, so I'm just curious to know. (laughs) no
9: it wasn't easy i actually wrote this book uh faster than um my, the memo because we were on a very tight <laughs> time crunch and so i wrote the book in 2020 during the pandemic which we're still in and um so i had about six months to write it and i was also grappling with um the racial trauma that was happening you know in the united states and so for me um As writing this book, uh, I realized that there's a lot of trauma that many of us experience in the workplace. And what I hope the reader will get is to first let them know that they shouldn't have to just survive in the workplace, but it's possible to thrive. And also to acknowledge that some of our workplaces have been harmful, right? And that we should have never had to experience those things. And so what would it feel like to finally let that trauma go to where we're not always paranoid at work, why we're not always... Um, worried about being the only one, and when we do experience racial discrimination, how we can handle it. So this is really packed with tools and frameworks to help people feel like they're not alone when they are experiencing toxic workplaces and knowing that they have the capacity to be free, to affirm themselves first, and then everybody else after.
8: That is awesome. Now, I also want to ask you, you know, I have to ask you, I have to ask you, of course, about the book tour coming up um i know you have some dates in october and you know, i'm curious to know okay so tell us more about the book tour for right within and also what are you looking forward to the most and it's going to be virtual so i'm just curious to know like you know what are you looking forward to and it's more about the book tour and how it's like you know the concept behind it and all that good stuff.
9: yes i'm so excited it'll be a little different when the memo was out i was able to be on a physical book tour so this time will be two mm-hmm. weeks of virtual touring. Um, the dates will be released here shortly and registration links, but I'm going to be in conversation for two weeks with amazing, amazing, amazing people like Dr. Joy from Therapy for Black Girls, Mina Harris, you know, she is an author um, a, and a, a founder of Phenomenal Woman and also happens to be mm-hmm. um, Vice President Kamala Harris's niece. <laughs> and I'm mm-hmm. on tour with mm-hmm. men as well white women um (laughs) so we're really going to dig into (laughs) what it's like to heal from racial trauma in the workplace and it's going to be a lot to impact but it's important to be able to heal in community
8: yes definitely i'm so excited for you that's so awesome yeah congrats congrats on everything that you're doing so i know you're you like you're a award-winning and best-selling author. Like, you just do so many amazing things. So I was like, you know, I have to try to get her on my podcast. I'm just very curious to know about her story and all that good stuff. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. You're welcome. And I'm very also curious to you know, you know, throughout your career and your success, has there been anyone who has, you know, contributed to your success or anyone who has inspired you along your journey to become the person that you are today?
9: Thank you for asking. Um, You know, I still feel like I'm still Mm -hmm. on a journey, um, but I would say my family um, has definitely been supportive and mentors and friends. But ultimately, I just, you know, I'm really thankful to God for giving me the opportunity to use my gifts in this way uh, because I know what Mm -hmm. it was like going through my 15 years career and feeling so alone and isolated. And um, I hope that the work that I'm doing, is making the workplace better. And so, you know, I'm just inspired by everyday women who keep getting up every day and making it work for them, but ultimately finding their voice too to say, hey, there may be better spaces for me and taking that that courageous risk. So I'm inspired by women like yourself and just everybody who's just trying
8: to keep keep on keeping on. <laughs> that's,
9: that's inspiring Thank all you. in and of itself.
8: <laughs> that is so, so awesome. Thank you so much. And, you know, throughout me talking um, to your, um, I think it was your PR, um, they were also, like, giving me more information about you along with my research I was doing. And I didn't realize you were also a professor. I was like, oh, my gosh, what don't she do? And so I think that is so amazing. Like, you know, what interests you? in teaching you know in that particular field and like you know what how How do you describe your teaching style so i thought that was just so cool and just i think that is so amazing that you're also a professor you know you're out here just making a difference and i'm just like I, wow <laughs> <laughs> thank you
9: thank you i'm trying i'm trying little by little um but my, my teaching style really is um practice versus theory. So there's a lot of, you know, things that you can read, you know, five tips, how to do that, you know, five theories about this. But really, my style is giving people the tips, right, but then also putting my students in simulated situations so that they can experience Mm -hmm. what it's like. So I teach a talent development course. And so I have a lot of, you know, aspiring managers and aspiring HR Um, professionals or some that are in their fields already. And I don't want them to get inside the workplace and use their employees as guinea pigs and harm them. So we test out how do you give um, effective evaluations? You know, how do you have um, courageous conversations without re-traumatizing someone? How do you think through your job description so that they don't have bias in them? So we really dig deep and I more so think of the classroom as a lab so that people can have real, time experience on these topics so that they're more prepared when they are engaging with, you know, humans and colleagues inside the workplace.
8: That is awesome. And also, correct me if I'm wrong, but you also did some studying and um, schooling at Western Illinois, correct, and also University of, of California and Harvard Business School, is that correct?
9: That is correct. I am a a, a proponent of continued education. <laughs>
8: That is amazing, so, so amazing, (laughs) which leads me to my next question, like how do you balance out everything, right, from being a CEO, a businesswoman, teaching, you know, handling speaking engagements, and plus, plus more, right? How do you balance it all out? And, of course, what do you do in your spare time?
9: Great question. Uh, So I'm learning to balance. Um, I am a -hmm. workhorse. Taipei personality so I it's really hard for me not to be like filling my time with something um work related but I'm realizing that you also have to stop and smell roses so I, I have people mm-hmm. on my team uh like my um coordinator Leo who really helps me and when I feel a little like okay this is too much then you know I let her know hey don't let me say yes to anything the rest of the month <laughs> don't let me say don't let me add another <laughs> meeting on this day <laughs> you know like Help me create a balance. And so sometimes we, we need help, right? We can't do it all on our own. And what I like to do in my spare right. time, um, I like to – so I have a French bulldog, and we I enjoy just, like, sitting out on the patio with him. Sometimes he likes to sunbathe, and then Aww. that gives me an opportunity to, like, just chill out. <laughs> and so, so he starts getting hot, and then we go back inside. But it, it gives me a chance to just, like, have a moment and just take in – you know, the atmosphere and nature. And, and I really enjoy just those yeah. moments of solitude.
8: That's awesome. <laughs> and also I want to ask you, of course, your podcast, Secure the Seat, your podcast, which is I think it's so amazing as well. Where do you see this in the next year or two? And also what do you love the most about your podcast, about your guests and just talking about different topics? What do you enjoy most about it?
9: yeah you know i i love secure the seat um because i get to talk to so many different people and they give us different perspectives right they challenge us to Mm -hmm. think things about certain topics a little bit differently so and it challenged me to do that as well and so i i love just hearing the different perspectives of my guests and then um i started my podcast just doing it um audio and so i moved um over the last year to doing live versions of the podcast and so that's always kind of cool too, being able to see, see people. So I give both those options for folks and then the future of it, you know, I really would love to have like a network or a channel that's geared towards women of color, black and Brown women, and just creating a bunch of different like production resources, like shows that geared toward um, our professional development. So, you know, um, I'm manifesting it through this conversation, so I'm just putting it out there. So we'll see what happens. (laughs) So I really love uh, the Secure the Seat podcast because it allows for different perspectives, you know, um, not just from women of color, but I also have, you know, those who consider themselves allies and other genders and intersections. And so I think that we can only make the workplace better if we understand what other people's lived experiences are so that we have the tools to be able to to be aware when certain things require our attention or to advocate for ourselves. And so my hope is that in the next few years, um, I would be able to have more of a platform to not only host my podcast, but then other people's podcasts as well as it relates to uh, more resources for women of color in Mm -hmm. the workplace.
8: That is awesome. And that's so funny because I was actually getting ready to ask my last question, (laughs) which was... (laughs) Uh, For someone, you know, who is looking to chase their dreams and they want to be just like you and following your footsteps, but they are scared of the word no, what advice can you give? Because oftentimes I feel like people are, well, they can let things, certain things um, discourage them. So from you, your opinion, you know, what advice can you give in regards to people following their dreams and not letting that word no scare them? Yeah, great question. I think
9: if I had let no scare me, um, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. Uh, I would <laughs> no is scary, no matter who who receives it. But no doesn't mean that I shouldn't be doing or that you shouldn't be doing what you were called to do. It just means that that mm-hmm. particular person is not um, aligned with what you're doing right now, and that's okay. <laughs> you know? and I think that- we just have to find our people, you know, I often say don't focus on who isn't helping you, but focus on who is, and there's always going to be yeah. more, more yeses than those. Yes,
8: yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I was to say again, you know, thank you so much for, you know, for sharing your story and just, you know, telling us more about your journey. I think it's super amazing every time I run across people who are doing great things. So I definitely, again, had to reach out and, I appreciate you taking a time out. I know you're so busy with a ton of things. And I just, you know, very grateful for this opportunity. So congrats again on everything and the release of your book, which is um on pre-order, correct?
9: Yes, you can pre-order right within right now wherever you like to buy your books. And thank you for using your voice the way that you do, and thank you for having me. You're very
8: welcome. Thank you so much. And for those who have tuned in, thank you so much for listening. I hope you all enjoyed this episode with the super amazing Minda Hearts. Be sure to look up for another brand new episode coming soon. And as always, please be sure to follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Miss
6: Some of you may remember that sound. As dial-up was replaced with broadband, the focus over the years moved to improving speed to cope with consumer demands on services. The internet opened up our ability to connect to others around the world. And then, in 1997, a new way to network began to emerge.
1: My name is Andrew Weinrich. I've spent most of my adult life starting and building startups. Uh, The very first startup was a company called Six Degrees. I was an attorney at the time. The internet seemed to be taking off and I was looking for an idea that I thought would have real legs, real longevity. And I came up with this concept that if everyone could index the relationships in a single place, that you could see the people you don't know through the people you do know. So what we would commonly refer to as your second degree would be facilitated by everyone taking the equivalent of their Rolodex at the time and indexing them in a single place. That had never been done before because that was never possible to do before. The notion of networking is as old as time. The idea of saying, I'm looking for a doctor, who do I know that knows a doctor? Who do I know that knows a lawyer? What we would commonly think of as a blind date is your second degree. We were the the first ones to say, there's a business here, there's a service here. There's a social good here. And then we wrote the original patent on what a social network was. Six Degrees grew to be the largest social network at the time we sold that business uh, in 1999.
6: Andrew explains how the evolution of social media has happened in tandem with
1: advances in technology. Prior to 1999, the majority of digital cameras were freestanding cameras. And one of the things Six Degrees did not have as part of its functionality was the ability for people to upload digital pictures or videos. Now, we would have been constrained with videos anyway because of bandwidth constraints. But what the great transformation that happened outside of Six Degrees was we woke up at a moment in time, sometime after 2000, when all of a sudden there were more camera phones than there were freestanding cameras. And so the great shift was people's ability all of a sudden to document every aspect of their lives, not because there wasn't the availability of freestanding digital cameras before then, but because as everyone incorporated cell phones as part of their lives, digital photography became part and parcel and core to that experience. And the next iteration of social networks after Six Degrees, I mean, the largest ones from Friendster to MySpace to Facebook, the defining attribute of Facebook became the digital photograph.
7: It's a social networking site that acts like a virtual notice board of your life that can be seen by any of your friends, so you can let them all know what you're up to. It's a
11: good thing, because you can find out where your friends have been throughout the years. You lose contact with so many people that it's brilliant to see them again.
7: I wouldn't admit to being on Facebook for any amount of hours, but I think I'd say at least half an hour.
11: But does
6: Andrew think society has developed an unhealthy obsession with social media? You know, it's very
1: difficult to take a step back and say, for a platform or for a technology that is as large and all-encompassing as social media, is it a net good or a net bad, net evil for society? And on the net good side, I mean, you've heard the stories. There's opportunities for people to collaborate on businesses, on research to extend beyond their immediate circle, partly because of social media. But even more than that, you've heard the descriptions coming from from the largest social media companies about a lonely person Who otherwise would have felt extraordinary isolation and figured out how to find meaning and community with a knitting club, you know, found other similar souls and brought people from sort of the depths of isolation into community. If we take all of that and describe that as a net good, I subscribe to that. All of that is incredibly positive, but that needs to be weighed against what are the net evils? The net evils are we've transformed a much larger part of society into this absolute obsession with not just documenting your own lives. The act of documenting your own life, I think is a good, but the idea that people suffer from FOMO, from fear of missing out, or that people are trying to emulate other people's lives, or that people are beginning to think the way they should live their life is based on what they're seeing elsewhere is clearly a net evil. And all of these self-styled, self-help, entrepreneurial gurus that tell everyone, you know, the key to being a successful entrepreneur, for example, the world I live in, is this idea that you have to build a brand and your brand is defined by your social presence is absurd. It's clear to me social media right now is affecting more people negatively than positively. Have people and businesses become too reliant on social
6: media? Is regulation inevitable? Will Facebook be driven into obscurity? Welcome to the Sky News Daily Podcast with me, Dermot Murnahan, as we examine the story beyond the headlines. Now, WhatsApp, uh, Instagram and Facebook have all uh, gone down in a major outage in the last hour. uh, Clearly, uh, Mark, what are Facebook saying about it all and uh, what are they doing to fix
7: it? To be a fly on the wall inside the uh, offices of Facebook here in the United States right now, I imagine there is a severe degree of meltdown going on.
6: Sky News was among media outlets which reported on the outage on October the 4th as people poked fun on other social media platforms, including Twitter. It wasn't fun, though, for businesses who rely heavily on the likes of Facebook and Instagram to reach their customers.
11: So my name's Hamda Issa Sawe. I'm the owner of A.A.'s Blends Traditional Somali Tea Spices. We are a tea brand. We're based online at the moment. We actually started our business in the pandemic. Everybody was at home um, and social media was a way for us to connect with customers. It impacted us a lot because A.A.'s Blends has a family-like relationship with our following. It's something that Instagram has really helped us follow because it's such an easy way of communicating with them and it did impact sales a lot for us because it's a very natural path of discovery for customers to come across us and then they see the brand, they see the product and then they go and click on the website. Those are the steps that they typically follow in order to make a purchase. Usually we have a plan to post things on our stories, post things on our feed, as well as you know replying to DMs, replying to messages and also looking at the pictures that our customers have tagged us in. So when it's very image-based or visual heavy, it's not something that always gets to work very well on Twitter. What i realised is that as small businesses, we're really at the mercy of Facebook and a lot of small businesses have grown very dependent on Facebook-owned tools like Instagram Storefront, um, using sponsored posts, advertising through Facebook's network and we're so dependent on all of these tools to generate ourselves. So it really got me thinking what do we do in the event that Instagram never comes back. You know, that panic kind of sets in and you think to yourself, oh my goodness, what would the world look like or what would the business world look like in a post-Instagram world?
6: Is there too much
7: reliance on socials? I'm Jordan, I'm lead developer at Pennars and we're based in the southwest of England. So we're a digital marketing agency. We deal with advertising on Facebook, Instagram, all of the social platforms. A couple of years ago, Facebook went down for around 24 hours, but that was sort of isolated. It wasn't a global outage. There were some knock-on effects from that, but there's never been anything quite like this one. Facebook um, is at the core of a lot of social platforms. So when we interact with Instagram, we're essentially interacting with Facebook, which meant that Instagram was out, Facebook was out and everything. When posting to Instagram, for example, that often brings in a lot of traffic to new blog posts, articles, and that was completely wiped out. So there's a lost period of time that can't be reclaimed. So a lot of businesses are missed out there. And then also just looking at Facebook advertising. Again, Facebook have said no one's going to be charged. For the time they've missed, there's not going to be any charge for adverts that weren't posted. But that's a period of time in the lead up to Christmas with ongoing things sort of disruption to shipping and things that businesses could just do without. And there is a lot of reliance on Facebook and Instagram. um, And there's sort of a movement to try and broaden the allocation of marketing funds. But really, there is a particularly special place for Facebook and particularly Instagram in marketing.
6: The outage, lasting nearly six hours across Facebook's platforms, affected its 3.5 billion users and staff. The tech giant later blamed a faulty configuration change for the problem. Days later, though... Facebook's apologised after another outage. It wasn't as severe as the one that... While outages are inconvenient, the bigger and arguably more important conversation has been about whether enough is being done to block harmful, offensive and misleading content online. On October the 5th, Facebook faced another challenge.
0: I'm here today because I believe Facebook's products harm children, stoke division and weaken our democracy. The company's leadership knows how to make Facebook and Instagram saver, but won't make the necessary changes because they have put their astronomical profits before people.
10: Hi, good afternoon. Nice to talk
6: to you. Very good to talk to you.
10: My name is Cecilia Kong. I am a national technology correspondent for The New York Times, and I'm also the co-author of the book, An Ugly Truth Inside Facebook's Battle for Domination with Shira Frankel. I am a user of all of Facebook's apps, which include Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, and Facebook Messenger. I mainly use these apps for reporting.
6: Do you, like so many billions of people in the world, find them almost indispensable by now?
10: I certainly can see that. I do not find them indispensable in that I do not necessarily need them to communicate with family and friends and for my work, but they're certainly useful, particularly the messaging apps.
6: How long have you been uh, with Facebook?
10: I was a really early user. I joined Facebook in 2006 and I started reporting on Facebook around that time. So I've been there since the start of the company, right when the news feed was introduced in 2006 as well. How
6: broadly do their algorithms work to keep us using them to, to make us feel that they're personalized towards us?
10: The algorithms are really the heart of the story about Facebook, and this is what makes Facebook different than other communications platforms in history, such as the phone or TV. The way that Facebook's algorithms work, or its ranking systems is another way of describing that, is it prioritizes engaging and agitating content actually. Facebook is in the business of agita and that's what we really explore in our book and in our stories in the New York Times about how Facebook promotes and puts at the top of news feeds and pushes users to see more content that is the most engaging, the most emotive, the most agitating content. Be that that agitation is positive or negative, happiness, fear, sadness, what have you. It's the kind of content that you want to click on to like, to put emoji beside, to comment on, and share. And the reason why that's so important for Facebook is because if you do engage in that way, when you do those kinds of actions, that means that you care about Facebook and you want to come back more. And the more you care and the more time you spend on Facebook, the more data that Facebook can collect on you. And that data is the data it sells to advertisers so that advertisers can put their brands next to your content in advertisers. That's the whole business of Facebook. It's agitation and data collection.
6: So to put it simply, if Facebook identifies you as being a pretty angry person from the sites that you visit and the people you engage with, it will push more stuff like that your way.
10: Yeah. And you know what we've discovered in the United States here with a whistleblower is that Beyond just pushing you towards similar content that you like, Facebook also often pushes you toward more dangerous content. This whistleblower came up, has disclosed thousands and thousands of pages of internal research memos and emails that show, in one example that I'd like to explain, that this has been the case with teenagers on Instagram. So this idea of how the algorithms works are really perfectly encapsulated in this study where they showed how, for example... A girl who might be on Instagram, a teenager, would express that she likes fitness and she may want to lose some weight. More and more, what Facebook will do is it will push content to that user that makes her go deeper into these interests. And it will push her to more content that gets more interaction, such as not just weight loss information, but perhaps anorexia information. How about extreme fitness information? And what they found are are case examples. This is Facebook's own research where one in three girls now say that their use of Facebook has made them feel worse about their body image and anecdotes that we've seen within Facebook's own research that showed this rabbit hole of how the anecdote, these algorithms works that push that girl who at first just expressed her interest in fitness and weight loss. And suddenly she's pushed to potentially harmful, very harmful content that's related to eating disorders.
6: And that you touched on it there, Cecilia, that um, this whistleblower, we're talking about Francis Hogan.
0: Thank you for the opportunity to appear before you. Who
6: Obviously used to work for, for Facebook, Hogan. gave some damning evidence testimony to a congressional committee, a senatorial committee not so very long ago, in which I suppose the, the most damning thing she said in terms of, um, you know, what you've been describing the practices is that Facebook knows it. Facebook's own analysis accepts that it does cause damage in, in many areas.
10: That's right. Frances Haugen's testimony had really a core message that Facebook has prioritized profits over people, is what she says. I
0: saw Facebook get taken off the internet. I don't know why it went down, but I know that for more than five hours, Facebook wasn't used to deepen divides, destabilize democracies, and make young girls and women feel bad about their bodies. It also means that millions of small businesses weren't able to reach potential customers, and countless photos of new babies weren't joyously celebrated by family and friends around the world. I believe in the potential of Facebook.
10: We heard many times in the hearing, the analogy towards a big tobacco movement. her whistleblowing has been able to uncover. And the reason why people are making that comparison is, as you say, Dermot, that because she is saying that Facebook has known this, it's, uh, it's Facebook's own research and its own communications that she has uncovered and she's leaked to the public that shows that Facebook has not acted to change things that have been warning signs within the company for quite some time.
6: And just unpick the big tobacco moment, that is after many decades of denying that uh, smoking tobacco did you any harm throughout the, the 1940s and the 1950s, there came a moment at which it was proven that tobacco companies had research that proved the, the amount of damage it did to people's bodies.
10: Indeed, different product. One is a chemically addictive product, the other one is arguably, and we I do not come down on either way on this side, but arguably addictive in other ways. But the key being, the key comparison and the analogy being that Facebook has information that contradicts its public statements. And its public statements is that the company's products, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, are positive and are good for society. Whereas the research itself shows that Facebook has been grappling internally with the fact that there are a lot of harms that its products produce.
6: But there was a real illustration and, uh, you know, what a weird coincidence it was with that outage, a six-hour outage of all Facebook's companies' platforms, WhatsApp and Instagram as well, globally, which, you know, the estimates are still coming in about how much that cost businesses and s- all kinds of entities in terms of revenues, and let alone the inconvenience it caused. But it just shows, there we are, we kind of understand the harms, but there is this another parallel with tobacco the dependency that so many people have upon them.
10: That's a really interesting way of describing it. I mean, I do think that in the United States and some Western, other Western European countries, people talked about, oh, the great relief of not being able to log on to Facebook or Instagram for six hours. That meant just, you know, actually seeing people in real life and engaging in real life conversations. But in so many other places around the world and so many other nations, Facebook truly is a utility. And I mean, WhatsApp, Instagram, and Facebook, it's the only way that people communicate communicate on the internet. And so for those nations and the people in those nations, their dependence on Facebook really was highlighted in the the Facebook outage that was, again, about six hours. And it showed that really vital communications and small businesses that depend on on Facebook were compromised for that period. And that really bleeds into a very strong, very heated discussion right now in Washington, D.C. and other regulatory agencies around the world as to whether Facebook is just too big and needs to be broken up because it is not incentivized to secure its own systems in the case of this outage and also to protect users
6: coming up will there ever be another social media firm as big as facebook
10: There are two things that really facilitated or sort of lubricated the machinery of Facebook's growth. And that was the ease in which mergers were done, as well as laws or the lack of laws to regulate the companies. But one particular law that was established in 1996 in the United States that essentially shields a company like Facebook from lawsuits for harmful content that it might host. This is a law that was created when the internet was so nascent. This was Even before Google was created, this is when Yahoo and AOL were sort of the kings of Silicon Valley. And that law was created to try to facilitate a booming tech sector and tech economy. The tech economy did boom, and a lot of these companies are absolutely no longer small nascent upstarts competing against legacy companies like phone and transportation companies. They are the dominant companies in the world economy. And so the discussion right now is whether that law that was created in 1996 should be reformed and that there should be oversight of the most powerful companies right now in the global economy.
6: But to be fair, Facebook and indeed not just Facebook are campaigning themselves, aren't they, for new laws, but presumably they will have a formidable lobbying operation that uh, is trying to shape the laws in the way they want.
10: That's exactly right. It depends on what kind of laws that Facebook is willing to support, and Facebook has and, and I'm sure anybody that watches television or reads a print publication has seen their advertisements promoting their support of regulation. But the types of regulation that I think a lot of people who are expert in Facebook and other social media businesses say that Facebook will avoid is any sort of regulations on its core technology, and that is the algorithmic amplification of content. And that was something we heard actually in this Senate hearing where lawmakers were talking about regulations on algorithms and they were talking about whether the companies like Facebook should be compelled to share how their newsfeed rankings, for example, work with Researchers, So that researchers can tell the world, really, through their research, how the spread of misinformation works.
6: Here's the big question, and it's a point that Facebook and others make. This is their statement after the whistleblower appeared before Congress. And it encapsulates it. It is a big problem, isn't it? Every day, our teams have to balance protecting the right of billions of people to express themselves openly with the need to keep our platform a safe And positive place. Now, in a nation, the United States, that came up with the First Amendment enshrining the rights of freedom to speech, it makes it very difficult, doesn't it, for the state to get involved then in regulating a platform like Facebook?
10: Yes. The regulation of speech in the United States in particular will be very hard. And that's why proposals for regulating speech that have been been introduced in the United States in the last three to four years have gone nowhere. But what I think Facebook misses in, or at least is not fully disclosing in that kind of statement, is that what their systems do are not neutral. What their systems do is they amplify certain kinds of speech. It, again, really goes back to the technology that is at the core of amplification and how the business works. And until that is done, there's until there is focus on the algorithmic amplification of really agitating speech, be it happy or sad speech or scary speech or what have you, then you can't really address the core problem of Facebook. The other thing is Facebook could do a lot of things that don't involve regulation that just make the comp- the The site healthier. For example, Twitter. Um, gives you a prompt when you try to share a news article that it sees that you did not try to open and read. It'll give you a prompt that says, "Are you sure you want to share this? Have you read it?" That kind of a thing. Facebook hasn't done that. And the whistleblower Frances Haugen said in her testimony that that kind of friction, the kind of friction that will make people pause before they share things widely, is the kind of stuff that Facebook could do in a self-regulatory way. Facebook knows this, and they know that they can do this. They've just chosen not to implement these kinds of practices.
6: Here's a thought, Cecilia, rather than regulation, fines, whatever, how about just allowing fashion and human nature to take its course? Now, I'm saying that because I've got teenagers, some young 20s who regard Facebook as from the age of the dinosaurs. The younger ones hardly even know what it is. You know, they moved on. It's TikTok, Snapchat, ones that I don't even know knowledge of. Why not just let that evolution take its course?
10: Well, I think that that evolution will take its course no matter what, but until this sort of evolution catches up with a lot of the harms that we're seeing with the spread of misinformation and toxic information, then there's still going to be a problem that rests with particularly Facebook, but all of social media. The other thing to really address is that Facebook is so powerful and it has so much cash that it can buy its way out of irrelevancy. And unless regulators are tough about protecting competition and more options for individuals, then Facebook will continue to buy up um, competition to compete with the next TikTok, the next what have you. But this is absolutely what keeps Mark Zuckerberg up at night. He's afraid of TikTok essentially becoming so popular that it drives Facebook into obscurity. I think what you'll see is that for some time, particularly in emerging markets, Facebook will remain not just popular, but a utility.
6: What about the advertisers? I mean, don't they have any qualms or don't they know about the fact that sometimes their advertising is appearing uh, alongside some of these hate sites?
10: I'm so glad you mentioned this because Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg said in a post on his Facebook account that it is illogical that Facebook is prioritizing profits over people. He's responding to the whistleblower's findings. And he said that the best example to support that theory that it's illogical is that advertisers simply don't want their ads placed besides hate speech. You know, he's right. And I've talked to dozens of advertisers and they say, we don't want that. And Facebook does not do enough to rid its site of harmful content, but there are no other places to go to get that kind of scale of consumer reach. Facebook is the big behemoth on the block. And in order to make sure that their brands get in front of people and not just the biggest advertisers, even small companies like your small shops, like your neighborhood dry cleaner or your neighborhood neighborhood coffee shop, they rely on Facebook so deeply because there aren't a lot of alternatives. Last year, thousands of brands and advertisers boycotted Facebook for this very reason. They had a campaign called Stop Hate for Profit. But after one month in July, they only had this boycott of Facebook for one month because they admitted themselves like we cannot afford to be off the site for more than one month. This is a principled stand, but we also have business realities. So I think that advertisers are begrudging grudgingly on the site, they would love to see other alternatives.
6: So they need Facebook more than Facebook needs them. So are we approaching, you mentioned a big tobacco moment earlier in the last century, this big oil moment um, when the authorities in the United States broke up those big companies owned by the oil barons. Are, Are we approaching something regulatory like that? So rather than attempting to oversee the billions of pieces of content every day, you just say you're too big. You have to sell this, sell that. You can't operate here. And that's the thing to do.
10: Yeah, I definitely think that this is a moment in that the Facebook whistleblowers revelations that contradict Facebook's public messaging about itself is absolutely analogous to the big tobacco moment and as we look in the cases of many other industries that have resisted regulation, including automobiles, toys, drug manufacturers, cable TV, broadcast TV, the telephone, there's just been always a resistance of regulation. If history is a guide, regulation is inevitable. The key is for a couple things. Members of Congress and regulators around the world to fully have the technological expectations expertise and knowledge to understand how to regulate these companies without doing more damage than good. And I think they are catching up, actually.
1: Does Andrew think Facebook has a future? If Facebook is not able to acquire new properties that are usually generated by new startups, I wouldn't be so certain that Facebook is going to be able to maintain this hegemonic hold on the social media ecosystem. I mean, Facebook's making a lot of investments around virtual reality and augmented reality, and maybe the next social networks are focused on virtual reality and augmented reality. But I think the only thing we're certain of is we really don't know the answer to that question. And we don't know where the next great social network is going to come from. But it's not likely to be one of the great social networks, the largest social networks we have. And that puts Facebook in a different category than the other giant tech companies, the Amazons, the Microsofts, the Googles, the Netflixes, there's no reason to believe that there's going to be a natural decay in their business. But there is a reason to believe that there's going to be a natural decay in Facebook's business. On the personal side, it's obvious to me that as a society, that we need to rethink what role social media plays in our lives. Because I would argue that for most people, their lives are not richer because of social media. Their lives are distracted, are dictated by social media and not in a positive way.
6: Well, that's it until next time. My thanks to our guests and to you for listening to the Sky News Daily podcast hosted by me, Dermot Murnaghan. This edition was produced by Annie Joyce, along with Tatiana Alderson, Simon Windsor and Nellie Stefanova. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can follow us in all the usual places and we would love a review while you're there.
10: The climate crisis can be an overwhelming and emotional conversation.
5: We will not let you get away with this.
10: But it isn't just about cutting carbon emissions or reporting on disasters. On Sky News Climate Cast, we'll examine the big issues in depth with scientists, policymakers and activists. Every week, we'll highlight how small changes can make a big difference as we look for solutions to climate change problems. Sky News Climate Cast. Listen, follow, subscribe.